0: I invite you this morning to look with me in your Bibles to Hebrews, the third chapter. Hebrews chapter 3, we'll begin reading verse 1 and read down through verse 6. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. This is God's word. Let's pray. Grant to us now, Father, that we would rightly hear this, your word, by your Spirit. Attend the preaching. Give our sins, which are so very many. Oh, for Christ Jesus' sake, hear us and show yourself a gracious, merciful Father. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, as the baseball season is winding down, I'm on occasion taken back to those thrilling days of yesteryear when I was alternately catcher, first baseman, third baseman for a quarry league baseball team. We were known as the Richland Boomers. Now that's not as glamorous as it sounds. To say we were a bad team would be no exaggeration at all. In fact, it would be woefully inadequate. We were so bad it took us three seasons to win our first game. We were so bad that an assistant coach changed our name from Boomers to Bloomers. (laughs) He then made the mistake of taking us all out for Cokes after practice, and most of us got milkshakes. It hurts in the pocketbook when you insult 10-year-olds. Those days in the late 60s were filled with some real baseball heroes. Cardinals had players like Bob Gibson, Lou Brock. Now, you probably had some heroes as well growing up, and maybe you still do. The audience here in the book of Hebrews, the Jews in the first century, certainly did. They had a great love for the patriarchs of their faith. We read all sorts of honorifics assigned to Abraham, but they especially revered Moses. We 21st century Americans read these first six verses of Hebrews 3 and see the comparison between Jesus and Moses, and it doesn't strike us all that strongly because we don't see Moses particularly, specifically, as a hero but for these first century Jewish Christians who are struggling with the question of how they are going to go on being Christian bear in mind they are living with the realities of persecution regularly they don't know when it's going to come how it's going to come exactly but their businesses face closure their lifestyles greatly altered Their families have often disowned them. They are being pulled in, if you will, to think that maybe, just maybe, this whole Christian thing is is okay, but boy, life was a lot simpler before all this. Maybe we ought to go back. My brothers and sisters, as we live in the era of the popularity now, of terminology sounds so blessedly impressive, folks who are deconstructing their faith, oh, my word, just how full of yourself are you? You're not smart enough to deconstruct this. Uh, if I just insulted you, I—no, I, no, I don't apologize— It is madness to look at that which has stood for two millennia, the core issues of how we understand life and faith and living, and think that a few folk in the midst of the early 21st century can somehow undo all of that. But the pressure is there nonetheless. It would be easier to capitulate. It would be less threatening to go along. And you couple this with the reality that some of the heroes that we have had have proven themselves absolutely unworthy of the acclaim. That's a sad, painful thing, isn't it? But it points out something. How often do we try to make our heroes somebody other than Jesus? How often do we elevate people to a status they simply cannot bear nor should? I wonder if this isn't somehow, somewhat, the basis for the development of even Roman Catholic hagiography, where certain people are elevated to the status of sainthood. Now, just so you understand, if you read the New Testament with any sense at all, you realize that every single believer is referred to as a saint, a holy one, somebody set apart to the Lord. It's not that there's saints on the professional level, saints in the minor league, and then the rest of us don't make it. The fact is that all of God's children are saints. But it, I think there's an element here where we, it, it kind of feeds our pride. If, if I can pick on another mere mortal like myself who's done really well and go to them and model after them, it then lets me be okay with my inadequacies my stumbling, but you see, the Son of God is always greater than the servant of God. That's the whole drive of this text. The Son of God is always greater than the servant of God, and it doesn't matter who the servant is. The author begins in this first verse by saying, Jesus should be the focus of our attention. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession. First, our identity comes from Christ, holy brothers who share in a heavenly calling. Yes, holy, set apart to the Lord. Hear me when I say this, my friends. You and I, as Christians, are called to live holy lives. This is not an option. This is an expectation. If you do not have any concern for holiness of life, then please, don't call yourself a Christian. But here's the other side of that, my friend. While you and I are called to live in holiness, to practice holiness, we also, if we have any sense about us at all, Realize how often we fail in that pursuit. Does that mean then that we're not holy? It does not. Because holiness, besides being a command and imperative, is also a status and indicative. That is, we are set apart to the Lord. We are holy brothers. Christ imparts to us a status. By His blood, by His action, He has set apart His people, the church. Now if you read Hebrews much you'll notice if you use a study Bible of any kind or a reference Bible lots of references back to the book of Leviticus. And that's because Leviticus is filled with all sorts of things the people of Israel are supposed to do to maintain their status of being holy. It had all sorts of holiness laws. How do you Bring a sacrifice. What sacrifice do you bring for this particular sin? What kind of animal has to be brought? How is this all done? All of this was about things and objects set aside as holy. But holiness, if you read Leviticus, could only come through the sacrificial system. This is still true. Our holiness comes through Christ's sacrifice. That is the only way It takes place. But brothers, holy brothers, share in a heavenly calling. Al Mulder put it this way, our common brotherhood in Christ produces our new familial relationship and ultimate unity. We're all part of the family. We must never lose sight of it. And we ought not treat it with indifference. Far too often, what I see believers tend to do is they like the idea of the family of God theoretically. But when it actually comes down to living this out as the family of God, mercy sakes, that is annoying. It's hard. We get crossways with each, or, each other so easily. We don't think the best of one another. We'll, we'll, we want everybody to give us a pass when we're in a bad mood. You ought to understand what I'm going through. If you understood what I was going through, you wouldn't be upset with me. <laughs> if somebody else is going through it, well, how dare they? Who in the world do they think they are? We are called to this heavenly calling in Christ. Do you, you see the picture he uses here? Called from heaven to heaven is really the picture here. Brothers, sisters gathered, holy, set apart to this holy calling. Our identity comes from Christ. But he takes it a step further. And what he does is after giving these descriptors, he says... Two words there, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. Our intense focus should be on Christ. Now the word here for consider is not a casual observation. Rather, it's a very intense consideration. It literally could be fix your thoughts or meditate on it. Consider, fasten your mind upon the apostle and high priest of our confession. Here is my question to you. How much time do you occupy your mind with the consideration, the thought of Jesus Christ? Now, we can get our minds on all sorts of things, can't we? Uh, The brilliant mathematician Norbert Weiner was walking across the campus at MIT, and he was so absorbed in thought that when a student greeted him, he didn't even respond. But after a few steps, he turned and said to the student, pardon me, could you tell me which way I came from? And the student pointed and said, that way, sir. Thanks. Now I know I've had lunch. Now that's a level of distraction in some sense, but also a level of focus with which most of us have very little acquaintance. But there is a sense, my friend, when you and I ought to be occupying mind and heart with Jesus Christ, much thought about Him, much focus on Him. Now, you just, Doug, you just said that we're brothers and we need to care about the family. Let me give you the pathway here. Considering Jesus will make you better at being a brother or sister. Considering Jesus will make you better at the holiness. Those things are true, but they pivot around this imperative. Consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our faith. Now we normally don't apply the term apostle to Jesus. Now those of you that have been in Sunday school... Oh, a long, long time, some of you, right? What is an apostle? Oh, you didn't know there's going to be a quiz. An apostle is somebody officially sent on behalf of someone else with a message. Jesus is the original apostle, he is the original sent one. The Father sends the Son to bring a message from heaven. He is the Apostle of the Father. He also calls Him High Priest. This designation, first pointed out here, is going to be expanded greatly through the rest of the letter. We'll not stop there for long. But you see, the teaching that the readers had accepted focused on Jesus as God's high priest as one sent from God. Their confession is not abstract. It focuses on Jesus. Now, if Jesus is the focus of our attention. It's also partly because Jesus is actually the architect of the church, of the house, of the people of God. Now, you go into this and he starts talking about Moses. Now, please note, he does not denigrate Moses. He doesn't say anything bad about Moses. Moses was faithful. He says of Jesus, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. Now remember, these are Hellenistic Jews, that is Jews who are living scattered throughout the Roman Empire Many of them have never had the privilege to go to Israel. Many of them have no knowledge, absolutely no knowledge of Aramaic or of Hebrew. They're Greek speakers, and yet they are very much Jewish folk. They're scattered. Their primary background was the Old Testament, and in particular they would have had amazing reverence for Moses. In fact, the Old Covenant, if you will, is essentially the legacy of Moses' ministry to the people of Israel. Moses is the first prophet. He is the first to act as a spokesman for God to the people. He carries the message, the word of the Lord. Now as he compares Moses and Jesus, he's not focusing on Moses' failures versus Christ's triumphs, but rather he's comparing their faithfulness with this huge difference in their identities. Now, I didn't realize this till this week, but there was actually a, a teaching within first century Judaism that regarded Moses as greater than the angels. I had no idea. And that... That's intriguing, then, if you look how the author makes his progress. First, Jesus is greater than the prophets, then, Jesus is greater than the angels, and now, Jesus is greater than Moses. Wow. So here's the comparison and the contrast. Both were faithful. You cannot look at the life of Moses without seeing that. He didn't forget who he was in Pharaoh's court. He attempted to liberate his people, weird attempt, but he makes the attempt nonetheless. I don't know whether he thought he was just going to assassinate enough Egyptians to cause a rebellion, but he makes the attempt. He obeys the calling then ultimately in the wilderness. He faces the hatred of Pharaoh. He faces the misunderstandings of the people of Israel. He faced the hatred of his people at times. He would plead with God for his people. He received the law of God for the people. The Lord says he spoke with Moses, literally says mouth to mouth. He looks in a sense at the Lord in a way no one else had. He leads the people through 40 years of wandering and judgment and is buried by God on a mountain. Moses is mentioned Something like 70 different times in the New Testament. Do not denigrate Moses. He was faithful. But what was Jesus' faithfulness? Well, he came as promised. He takes on humanity. He submits to his parents. He endures obscurity. God in the flesh, he lives a holy life. He gives himself to the people. He gives himself for his people and is raised to live forever. Now remember the comparison again is faithfulness. Not Moses' failures and we can point those out but that's not the point of this. Here is Moses is faithful, Jesus is faithful. But here is the reason Jesus gets greater honor. Moses was a true servant in the house. Now, the house is a reference to the people of God. The scripture uses the places. The picture here is, if you will, in our era, the church. This is the house. Moses is a servant in the house. Jesus is the Lord over the house. Moses is in it. Jesus is the architect. Jesus designs it. In fact, it's intriguing. The word here for servant is not the one you've heard so many times, doulos. Funny little word, Therapon. Therapon held a position of nobility under the authority of the one who appointed him. Moses did what he was called to do. But he is a servant within the house. Moses is part of the house. Jesus built the house. Moses is a servant of God. Jesus is God. Moses prophesied the Messiah. Jesus is the Messiah. In him comes that which Moses could never do. Bear in mind, my friend, the struggle as we look at the Old Testament was the law came with clarity about what was required to please God. It was filled, it was filled with promise, but it was also filled with threat. Do this and live. Fail to do this and die. The law demanded perfection but gave absolutely no means to accomplish it. It made a place for forgiveness. But the forgiveness always tied to the sacrificial system, right? Every time there was a sin, the picture was there should have been a death. And whether a dove a lamb, a goat, or a bull. Blood had to be shed, and the shedding never stopped because the sins never went away. Paul will say in Romans three twenty-one the righteousness of God. Has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He'll tell us in verse five Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, and the things that were to be spoken later concern Jesus, God in the flesh, the Lord's anointed, the Messiah. The house created. There may also in these verses be a reference back to Zechariah, possibly Zechariah 6. Now I know many of you had your devotions this morning out of Zechariah 6, so you know exactly what I'm talking about. But for those of you that didn't and need a bit of a refresher, Zechariah is what's called a post exilic prophet. That is, He prophesies during the era when Israel has come out of captivity, have come back to the land, and they're trying to get established. And you may remember there was the struggle over building the wall, and there was Nehemiah, and then there's the struggle over rebuilding the temple. And you had uh, both Ezra and others who were trying to get that part of the work done. Well, if you look in Zechariah 6, you see there's two leaders in Israel. There is a king, a governor or a king, Zerubbabel, and a high priest named Joshua. And part of Zechariah's prophecy was to encourage these guys to keep doing this, although it was hard and difficult and a huge struggle. Rebuilding is always hard. And this is what they were engaged in doing. But you'll read in Zechariah six eleven these words, Take from them silver and gold and make a crown. Now this is the Lord prophesying, through Zechariah prophesying under the Lord's inspiration. And set it on the head of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest. Now wait, whoa, time out. Priests don't wear crowns. Kings wear crowns. Priests have other regalia that they're supposed to wear. And then it's followed with these words, Zechariah 6, 12, "...and say to him, Thus says the Lord of hosts, Behold the man whose name is The Branch." And the S.V. capitalizes the B in Branch. "...for he shall branch out from this place, he shall build the temple of the Lord. It is he who shall build the temple of the Lord and shall bear royal honor and shall sit and rule on his throne." and there shall be a priest on his throne, and the council of peace shall be between them both. So what's going on here? Well, on one level, it is the Lord saying, let's keep the connection between the regency, if you will, the king, and the priest. Let's not separate those. The king ought to support the temple being rebuilt. But there's another element here. Zechariah, under the inspiration of the Spirit, talks about the branch, one individual who seems to couple together kingship and priesthood to build the house of the Lord. And what does the author of Hebrews tell us? Jesus is the builder of the house king priest united in him this only comes together fully and finally in jesus christ he is the architect of the house well now because he's the architect verse six tells us the final thing we consider jesus is also then the master of the house Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Jesus is over the house. He is preeminent. He matters. Now, too often we get delusions of grandeur ourselves, I think, about how wonderful we are. It's kind of like the fellow who got to deliver a speech at his town's rotary club and was very pleased with himself about how it turned out and he later was talking to his wife and said, you know, honey, I wonder just how many great speakers our little town has produced. To which she wisely replied, I think our town has produced one less than you think. (laughs) We are the house and this imagery is found throughout the text. 1 Corinthians 3.16, do you not know that you are God's temple and God's spirit dwells in you? 1 Corinthians 6, or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 1 Peter 2, as you come to him, what we read in the response of this morning, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Let me, let me make sure you follow this. The presence or absence of a physical temple in the city of Jerusalem does not matter. I know I just messed some of you up real bad. The temple of God is not geographical anymore. Other than this reality Geography. Everywhere the people of God are, the temple of God exists. It is no longer about a single site, one location. It is about all the people of God, the living stones, who make up the temple of God, the place where the Spirit of God dwells, and this is the house of God, and Jesus is master. Over that house. Now how are you and I to live. In light of being. That house. Here's the proof. That we're part of the house. If indeed. We hold fast our confidence. And our boasting. In our hope. Our holding on is the proof that we're really and truly part of the house what christ builds succeeds now understand i don't think the author is contemplating whether the readers are already christians his point is pastoral he's saying the readers must persevere to belong to god's house put it more plainly jonathan edwards said it this way the sure proof of election is that one perseveres to the end the certainty that you're His is you hold on. You persevere. You are His and you hang on. You hold fast your confidence and you boast in our hope. So here's the question. Have you focused on Christ or have you focused on on someone or something else. You know, I watch pastorally over the years. And it is sad, but you do observe failures. And when you observe failures, especially of those who are highly esteemed, sometimes you see believers shaken by that. And even worse, if those in leadership have somehow been abusers or abusive. It is a tragedy. And so I would would say this, if you're an unbeliever, hear what I'm about to say. Be careful of where you look when you consider this matter of Christianity. You may look at the Lord's servants and without much trouble, find fault. Right? Right? Believers, we're all going to own that, right? You, you can find fault with us. You will find no fault with Jesus. Now, said, so, "Well, but they've disappointed me. He won't. They were hypocrites. He isn't. They hurt me. He didn't." I don't know if I can go on. Stop looking at them. Look at him. Look to him. Believers, be careful of your heroes. Let no one be higher in your estimation than Jesus Christ. Ever. Leaders come, leaders go. I think sometimes those in Christian leadership struggle over the issue of their place. Here's reality. We get to do this for as long as the Lord says, and then we're gone. We ought to be okay with that. And the church certainly ought to be okay with that. None of us, none of us are indispensable to the work. Jesus is indispensable. The rest of us are highly dispensable. I'm reminded even the Lord said, I can raise up out of these rocks children of Abraham. (laughs) If he can do that, he can raise preachers, pastors, elders, leaders. Our faithful savior listen to the words of tom schreiner jesus was faithful in his mission just as moses was faithful in his still jesus deserves greater honor than moses for moses is a member of the house jesus is the builder of the house always my friend exalt jesus christ if you read the new testament with any discernment at all you find over and over and over again phrases about being in Christ Jesus or in Christ or something about Christ. Now, if that was good enough for apostolic Christianity of the first century, that there is much exaltation of Jesus, then you and I ought to reflect that in our living, in our thinking, in our speaking, that we exalt Him, the Son, is always greater than the servant. The Son of God is always greater than the servants of God. Let us consider Him. Join me in prayer. Father, help us that we would fix our attention on Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, we pray for those this morning that may not yet know Jesus. May they consider him. May they look to him. May they know their salvation depends wholly and entirely on him. May believers recognize that there is no disappointment in Jesus Christ. May they rest. Oh Lord, it is good for us to have others whose walk and life are gracious and encouraging. Those that we could look to as we hear Paul saying, follow me as I follow Christ. But Lord, may our ultimate estimation of the faith rest not in the servants, but rather in the Son of God, our Savior and Lord. This is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this hymn of response.